Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. And we have a very, very special guest with us in yes, studio we do. today. And we've just spent a little time meeting Steve. Again, Kim's favorite song. I love that song. All right, so we are in the studio with Steve Heeman, who is a filmmaker. Yes, I am. And it's the day after the Oscars, and Steve is going to win an Oscar at some point. I'm convinced. We hope so. It's going to happen. What a way to start off a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We're very excited that you're here. Like it's we we uh we don't get we don't get people in the studio very often. In fact, you're only the second person to actually come into the studio. I'm we, just as excited to be on. This is my first interview yeah. podcast. Oh, so we, yay. Hopefully we've, we've, the first of many. We've done several interviews, but they've all been remote. And so for us, it's fun because now we get to have people in the studio. We got to talk for a little bit, get to Wonderful. know you a little bit. Yes. And yeah, and, and he do you guys We like you. Do you guys hear his voice? How great he sounds! Like he, I he, he needs should, his own podcast. He shouldn't be making movies. He should be in the movies. Kim. I agree. He was in a movie. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> but I didn't see the final result, so I don't know if I was on the cutting room floor or not. Oh well, I mean, I walked through a library. Well, that's it was, significant. It was okay. That's more than I've ever done in a it movie. It is in the details with movies, though, so it all adds up. It all there makes you go. a difference. Exactly. All right, so, Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself. You are from the Dayton area, correct? That is correct. I was born in Springfield. I grew up in Fairborn, and at 11, my family relocated to the south of town, Centerville. Oh. I've stayed there ever since. <sighs> I went to Kettering, so I guess I... I won't hold it against you that we're bitter the high rivalry, school rivals. Yeah, the firebirds, <laughs> the firebirds and the knights, that ongoing feud. Yeah, well. Yeah, I think, oh, well. Many, I think many years I, ago, I, and I didn't really like school that much anyway, well, so it's fine. Well, I think Centerville is the, uh, for everybody. I know Beaver Creek, that's the rival. Nobody likes Centerville? No one. <laughs> is that what you're trying to say? Uh-oh. But this I went is, to Alter. I mean, Centerville, Okay. what I know is that they're, Class is four times the size of mine, They're which huge. is fine. It is a school. It's it's a huge school. Um. So, did you study film? No, I grew up a percussionist. So, what makes my experience unique is that I started making movies when I was twenty-seven. That's a little late I, to the game. You're right. I watched movies a lot from the library back in the day when you could borrow VHS tapes from the Wright Memorial Public Library nice. and everywhere else. And I would watch these movies in middle school. And one specific memory I have is that my dad would ask me, you like movies so much, have you thought about getting a video camera? And I'd, I'd completely brush it off. I said, I have no interest in doing this. Why? I like to watch them. It just didn't appeal to me at the time. How old were you then? I was 14, 15. So a lot of people, you hear the common story of, I was running around with a video camera with my friends, you know, Steven Spielberg, that I was a kid and I was enthralled by going to the cinema every week or, you know, whatnot. And I came into it late. My gut was just not ready for it. My, you know, where I was in my life wasn't right. 
You know what, though? That's so interesting. And I think that's really cool that your dad was so supportive before you even knew. For sure. Um, For sure. Like, I went to Wright State. Uh, I started out as a theater studies major for three years. And my stepdad was like, there's no way you're going to make any money at that. I want you to take a bit, you know, you need to have a business minor so you have something to fall back on. And that's really cool. I mean, I understand where he was coming from. But that's really cool that your dad was like, I see that you love this and I want to be fully supportive of it. And without a doubt, I remind myself all the time of the fortune I have for such a supportive network of family. And it turns out friends as well. Now, do you work with your family? I've noticed that um, there's a Bob Heeman mm -hmm. that's credited in, in some of your works. Is that your dad, your brother? That is my dad. That's awesome. My family is extremely collegiate and in the liberal arts. Okay. So I absorbed all that as a child. I am the only one who did not graduate from college. Nothing wrong with that. They were never once dismissive of my choices or pressured me to make one specific choice. That is great. was encouraged after high school to try the work world and try college, but there was no rush to go to college. I was... I was raised with the mentality, life is long, you are young, and things change and they get in the way, and there is no need for you to make a definite choice now. You should explore your options. You, you should not just hang out. Yeah. You, you should be searching, but the search is valid and the search is necessary. So when I mention that my family is collegiate and in the liberal arts, my brother is a scholar, my mother and father are both teachers, and my mother is a choreographer and a ballet student, oh, and wow. my father taught Latin, English, speech, and theater to high school. So I absorbed a lot of the intellectual um, reflection, Yeah, and I absorbed it, and I applied it, what turns out to be later life, later in life to film, even though I myself dropped out. After two years at Wright State, I never picked a major. I took all my gen eds. I took electives, but I... You know what, though? There's nothing wrong with that. I I almost wish, because I say that I spent three years in theater studies, and then I spent another, what, three or four years? I think four years total. About another $50,000 worth. Right, in education. So I graduated with my master's degree in $60,000 in student loan debt from Wright State, which... Is I mean, it's still even now not an expensive school, but then even back then it was even less money. So so you definitely took the wiser option. I, it was not easy. I, I am very grateful for the background and the support I have. Um, I took the harder road in terms of not having any Proven results. I think one of the benefits of following in school and and sort of setting your sights on on a major is that there is. A- but you know what? What is a proven result anyway? I mean, I would venture to say that you probably have had a lot more quote unquote proven results in your. L- life experiences is yeah, yeah that, than a true. lot of kids would have gotten in school. That's true. I think. Pragmatically, though, there are advantages to jumping through the hoops and going through the system. 
um, it, you know, it, it's, I don't ever, I, I've said actually, I still make it a habit actually. I'm, I'm a server at Corner Kitchen and every once in a while, every May, you know, the high schoolers come through and they're celebrating their graduation. And yeah. I almost always make it a point to congratulate the person who graduated because it's a feat that I just didn't have the will to do. Um, but it does, I think pragmatically, it does, it does help to have a degree, to have the, the ability to say, I went through the system, I went through the hoops. So I, it's more than what I have. Well, you know what? We, we kind of like to think, Kim and I, we kind of like to think that it takes everyone to make the world go round. And That's true. And, you know, Einstein, he... He didn't Einstein go to, failed yeah. out in what fourth grade? Not yeah. fourth grade, and but so, like he was—he didn't make it very far. Yeah, and so you know, there, <laughs> there's always this debate right now. You know, the kids got to go to college. The kids got to go to college. There are a lot of good jobs with the trades where people are being very successful mm-hmm. in life. And so, hey, you know, the, the current the the current state is that for sure. Yeah. You know, so, the, or even I mean, one of our our kids didn't. You know, she's a stay-at-home mom, and there's a place for that too. There's a, uh, there are so many places for everybody in the world that I don't think you should disparage yourself at all for not yeah, finishing. I, I, you know, well, thank you, you very much for the. You're doing what encouragement. is apparently, and it's obvious that this is your passion, and Absolutely. it's coming through. It's obvious, and you're making these films that people are enjoying, and so who cares if you have that paper degree that says you can do this you're you're doing it without the degree and that's really i admire that just as much as someone with you know a a doctorate in something like that so that means a lot that means a lot i and we've watched we've watched your films you can check out um i we watched your films on vimeo are they available that's where they're available okay on vimeo um and Steve does art. Uh, we should probably clarify okay, this. Okay, so I saw in because the credits. Because we've got two Steves now. Yeah. <laughs> so. so. Me, me, Steve, I, I saw in the credits that your film is described as art film. That's right. Okay, so I had, I had to go to Google, <laughs> and here is what I found on Google. An art film was typically a serious independent film aimed at a niche market rather than a mass market audience. This is. It is intended to be a serious artistic work, often experimental and not designed for mass appeal, made primarily for aesthetic reasons rather than for commercial profit and contains unconventional or highly symbolic content. So after we watched your first film, I had to go to Google and read that. And then I understood so much of what I sure. just saw after doing that. So what what is your niche market? Through my experience, which is how I learn primarily, I found that people in the collegiate field of film respond to my work more extensively uh-huh. than other people because they have the point of reference and they know what it is I'm not doing. And I think that's a key descriptor of my work is that it's an alternative to what people expect. And I think it's it's um, it appeals to... I hate to say it, but people with a with a specific vocabulary. But it's odd because I didn't go to school to gain that vocabulary. And I think that puts me in a position where I have appeal to people who have not gone to school like me mm-hmm. because there's so much I don't know. It's and interesting so it the, does give the work that, that middle ground appeal, at least I'd like to think it it's does. It's so interesting that you should say that, though, because one of your films, and correct me if my pronunciation is off, 
sine qua non. Correct. It's Latin. Whoa. That is I, Latin. I'm so right. smart, right? Don't without even try which, to get me to say that. Without which nothing. That is exactly is right. Is what it translates to. That's I'm, great that you bring that up. I'm, I'm very, very happy. I married <laughs> a smart one. I, it, honestly, it is one of my, it's only what, five minutes long, nine minutes long? That clip, yeah. It's not very long that at all. segment, yeah. I loved it so much. And it spoke to me on, on a lot of different levels because I'm very open about the fact that I have um, depression, clinical depression where my body does not make enough serotonin. And, and clinical anxiety where I just freak out about th- things for no reason. Oh, yeah. And this clip that is on Vimeo that you can watch is basically an interrogation about irrationality. And I was like, I totally understand everything that is being said right now. You perfectly captured exactly what it feels like when you're having one of those anxious irrational moments and you know that it's being irrational and you know that you're freaking out about nothing. And it was so eloquently captured and you did such a great job. I would have never guessed that you feel like you don't have the vernacular to, to capture it. That means the world, Kim, that, that means the world to me in part because that movie is probably my favorite. Really? And Irrationality is spot on, and the vernacular, I am proud to say that I think writing is one of my strong skill sets. Mm -hmm. I don't think of that to film the way I do, I think, it to theater. Mm -hmm. And so when I mention that I'm behind on the vernacular of film or film language or the, the rules of film... I'm referring to writing as as theatrical. And certainly there's a ton of writing in that piece and it's pretty much done as a a play would be done. It's it's three sets, it's three locations, a funeral parlor, a house, and a courtroom. Could very easily be done on the stage. Oh, absolutely. But I... I want to say that it means so much to me that you mentioned the irrationality because writing to move people emotionally isn't actually what I default to. And so when it does resonate with someone emotionally, that is like succeeding 500%. Because I, I know that I'm, you mentioned the title. I think that might suggest to people that I, I am more cerebral um, and intellectual in my approach. I've always liked, watching films that confuse me. And I've always liked being challenged. And I've always liked an analyzing or observing what I'm seeing. And so I have approached film in the mindset of, if I can do for someone else what so many films have done for me, that's terrific. And challenging is one of those mm-hmm. things to do. Um, and seeking reflection is another. But if there's an emotional connection, that's extra credit. I mean, that just <laughs> that rounds out the whole package. Oh, yeah. Because that is not what my main objective is. I think that's unusual for a lot of people, but it means so much that 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 it did work on you because then I'm I'm sort of winning on both accounts. I'm doing the challenging um intellectual side, but I'm then 
resonating with people emotionally. Now you brought up something, so you make film, but then you, you said something a second ago. Is there anything, do you ever see yourself taking anything to the stage? Could you do that with your style of artistic work? Without a doubt. Mm -hmm. Most of my work is challenging to people because it is, as I would say, anti-cinematic. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of elements in it that aren't cinematic. Um, I would argue that that doesn't mean it's not a film. There are many films I've seen that are very theatrical. They're shot like they're, it's on a stage, prolonged takes. Woody Allen did it in two movies called Interiors in September. Birdman is a popular example where that, that has a theatrical feel. But I think it would be very easy to translate any of my ideas to the stage because there is a, a, a focus in live theater that is not there in film. Essentially, movies move along very quickly in ways that theater doesn't in a yeah. lot of cases, okay, in, so in a lot of ways. So this is bringing me to another question. We've watched your film, mm -hmm. and there is a lot of, besides the actor, and I'm not familiar with the correct term, but we talked about it a little bit ago with sure. all the other stuff. How would you replicate that on stage? The last movie would be impossible. <laughs> it, it's a trailer for a non-existent film, and the, the, mm -hmm. the cuts and the underdeveloped or unresolved storyline yeah. is, is key to that film. But just the language itself, I think, would translate really, really well to the stage. Oh, yeah. If, I, if you were to take just the dialogue from the last movie with some additions, with some restructuring, I think as a, a, a poem delivered or a monologue done on stage, that could work. But as a whole with the characters and the visuals, that could not trans transfer over. I've talked a lot about just in friends who in, you know, will listen to me ramble and, and carry on as I, it's very easy for me to do with this topic. But when you're in a theater and you're watching a play, you only get one angle. And in a film, the presumption is that you get all the angles. I'm going to see it close. I'm going to see it far away. I'm going to see it from the side. I'm going to cut to another scene, and I'm going to cut back to this scene. You have a lot going on. Yeah. And so in theater, when I said earlier it's more of a concentrated experience, your angle doesn't change. You know, your point of view is one point of view. Yeah. And... I'm, what I'm referring to specifically is where you're sitting. So a theater in the round, you might be on the right, you might be on the left, but you don't see it from multiple points of view. And um, that's one reason why that movie j just couldn't translate because one of the ideas is you're always showing something different. The trailer is moving forward. It's excited. There's an adrenaline to it. And I, don't, I, I would argue you just can't do that on the stage because the viewership, is important, and it's one thing that is key to film, is the angle, the composition. Oh, we, we talk about that all mm -hmm. the time. Oh, it's you know the 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 swooping shot or the the intense close up that is claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. How would you imagine 
that being done on a stage. Now, that's very avant-garde to do. Well, and that's one of the things, I'm a huge Hitchcock fan, and that's one of the reasons why, is I feel like Hitchcock was the master of shots. Like, Mm -hmm. you, uh, just everything, like, he knew how how to use the camera to make you feel a certain kind of way. And I, I love that about Hitchcock. And I want to talk about um, the film that you've been referencing is called Want, Yes, Need, No. And you have a film coming out next week or the Two following week. It's Two weeks. your first full length, correct? That's right. And in watching the trailer for it, you used some of the same concepts as Want, Yes, Need, No in that there is no... Um, real like pronoun use it's mine and your and I noticed some of that also in in the feature length so are the two interlinked yes they are okay this is the sequel to want yes need no and this film is called Colrich and it is a sequel in that it is the second part of a reimagining of present day society it's not the sequel in that the story continues there are ideas and themes that carry over, but it's not a Star Wars situation where where did the galaxy leave off and where are we going to go? It's, I created a world and now I want to show you another part of that world. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned pronouns. That's a consistent element in, in the film. That idea with the pronouns... The pronouns, by the way, for the listeners are used in place with possessive pronouns. So in the reimagining, language is a key component of any culture. Mm -hmm. And I put it on myself. If I'm going to reimagine society, language should be reimagined. Because not only does it say a lot about a society but I'm reimagining it. There are elements that need to be different. But it can't be too different because then eventually it falls apart. I can't invent a language. Right. I mean, that, that, that's, that's absurd. But it should be different enough that people recognize reimagining, and this is a, such a key component of a culture that it should be different. And rather than try to build a, a, a set or a set design or an alternate location that looks like it's in a different place. Language being a proclivity of mine is also just much more feasible. And so instead of my, instead of I, excuse me, people in the culture say mys, which is M-Y-S. So it's a combination of mine and so my. In fact, you are kind of inventing your own language a little bit. It, I, Thank you for the compliment, <laughs> to a degree. And I, I did go a little step further. In a lot of instances, auxiliary verbs are not used. So, for instance, I'll use the example, I'm walking the dog. In the reimagined society, the sentence would be spoken, Mai's walking the dog. Was that hard to when you were writing it? Did you, did, how did you do that? What was your process? Did you go through and write it? sort of traditionally and then go through and substitute or did you like a like a true bilingual would and flip the switch in your brain and just write the whole script in the other language I came up with the idea when I was driving and that's I, almost as good as in the shower 
I, I <laughs> figured it out one step at a time, and I looked at the structure of language and replaced certain elements. So to backtrack a little bit, the idea came from driving, but it was also planted in my head that language always changes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why it changes, but I suspect one of the reasons has to do with mistakes that are adopted. And after that happens, the language just changes naturally. And I'll give you an example. You might hear people say from time to time, me and Steve are going to see a movie. Mm -hmm. That is not correct. It's in the culture. I don't think it's a right or wrong issue, but I know that I had remembered that, and it just had sunk into my subconscious. And tracing ideas back to their origin can be very difficult. I just get them. I just get the ideas. But I do think that hearing people use me instead of I influenced me to create speech that is different but conceivable. And it's one thing to just create words, but if they don't have a root, if they're not connected to something real, then the idea of reimagining language doesn't really work because well, and, and that, it's and not based on anything. It doesn't evolve into anything. And yeah. so... That idea of me versus I, too, to me, me sounds almost more primal mm -hmm. and more um, base than I. Right. It sort of takes away a little bit of an identity and, and makes it more of just a basic, like, a needs-based more so than, than anything else. Um, but what I'm really, another thing I'm really curious about, because your the new film takes place in a prison. Okay, you're speaking Kim's language right here. I know, I'm so sorry. She, she has a master's in English. And I'm thinking Steve about, hasn't had a chance to say anything. And I'm sitting here thinking about episodes of Gilligan's Island right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, I feel the bad. Melding. I'm like t totally hijacking this conversation. No, no. But I am really interested, too, because you told us that this film has taken 22 months to get from concept to final product, but so have your other films. And yet this one is feature length. Right. Where the other ones are not. Can you explain that a little bit? I'm afraid I don't have a satisfying answer for that. <laughs> if I can remember, I started in 09. I was 27. And I think getting all the actors to be in the first movie just took time. And that ended up being an, a year and a half. Oh, wow. Figuring out where am I going to show it? Do I want to show it? And am I going to get all the actors to be in it? Yeah. And I use that, I think, as a measuring stick. Because the second movie, I think one of the secrets is that I just write what I write and I figure out what I want to see and how I want it to be heard. And then I record it and I edit it. And I use that initial intuition throughout the whole process. So there's not a lot of changing my mind. Mm. The second movie, for instance, has the first half monologues. It's 30 minutes of monologues. And that doesn't take a whole lot of second guessing and how is this going to work into the whole
picture. Mm-hmm. I just know that I'm going to have these monologues and this is who's going to say it and this is what I want the character to look like. And um, the year and a half is also the learning curve. I didn't want to just throw something together based on what I already knew. I wanted to challenge myself to create an effect that I might not know how to do. And that is that just takes time. Right. And so projecting... A, a longer deadline that I might need was certainly the smarter of the two. If I promise someone eight months, give it to them at 14 over promise under deliver. And I think I stuck to that. And I think that um, the deadline helps keep me on track, but having a longer deadline than I might need allows me to prom to deliver when I promise. Let me get a few more uh, base questions out of the way to get to know you. Sure. And then let's get into your new film, and it's going to premiere, I understand, at, at the Neon. But a couple questions that really came to mind for me are, um, you're talking about timelines and deadlines, but do you receive any financial backing? Now, I'm not asking this to ask how much money you make, if any, off the film. My question is really designed for others who are looking to do something like you are doing. Is this something they can just do on their own, or do you need some sort of sponsorship to make this happen? You do not need sponsorship. You can do it on your own. I would say that if you do it on your own and you're smart about it, you will find that you're doing something alternate to the usual production of a movie. Because the production of a movie cannot be funded by an individual mm-hmm. who's not extremely independently wealthy. And so the alternative is to make the most of your limitations and your resources. You're going to have limited resources. You're going to have limited ability. That doesn't mean you can't make a film. Mm-hmm. I am adamantly against the idea that films are these enormous undertakings that need a team of people to put them together. If you want to make a movie that is three locations with a lot of conflict and a lot of characters and a lot of actors, and you want it to be feature length, I don't think you're going to finance it yourself. And if you do, it's going to be more than likely a poorly put together piece of work. And or else it's gonna, or or else it's gonna be like your opus, like your life's work that it's gonna take you your entire life to get it done. And you're not doing this to make money. You're doing this to put your ideas and your thoughts into this, right? Right. I'm doing this because I know that if I don't, I'm not living my life to its potential. Yeah, I know that. So it's it's your passion, just like us sitting here with this podcast. You, you realize we've made a couple million off this already. <laughs> I got very lucky. I wrote uh, the right eat people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. Hit us up when you're ready to make your next movie. We'll yeah. fully fund yeah. it for you. So, well, that kind of comes in. Where do you find your actors? The very first movie was an individual I am indebted to. He's my best friend, my roommate. I met him at a video store called Precinct 13. He was a regular um, renting offbeat movies. I was a regular renting offbeat movies. He had a T-shirt on, uh, promoting a theater production community, or excuse me, 
a community theater production he was involved with, and I was looking for actors just to do voiceovers. I was starting out very, very simply. I was just wanting to record some lines I had written. And he knew people um, in the area, and uh, he gave me a shot uh, at friendship and, and a, a trust that I would come by and, and that it wouldn't tarnish his, his uh, reputation with his fellow actors and the people he was directing. And then I did use Craig, Craigslist. I got some great response from Craigslist. I have reached out to Sinclair. I used a lot of Sinclair actors for the fourth movie. And then the third movie and the second were friends of friends and people I would see in shows that I would reach out to after the show and say, I would like to talk to you uh, for a small acting bit. I'm a local filmmaker. Those, those are the main, main sources of, mm-hmm. of actors. Um, Dayton is, is replete with, with talent on, on the stage. And oh, that, yeah. that helps a whole lot, especially when you're approaching it with a theatrical sensibility. And going back to what I said about working with limitations and limited resources, if you appeal to or you work with theater actors, Dayton, you're right in the, the perfect place. Well, that goes back to the whole thing. Like Henry Ford, when he moved the Wright Brothers store up to Michigan, he dug up a, a foot of earth underneath it. I don't, I don't think that it's just actors. Dayton area has some pretty incredible people, whether it's through industry, through That's it's very true. acting. There is a lot of That's talent here in the Dayton, Ohio area. And I don't know what it is. Maybe Henry Ford was right. Maybe it is in the dirt. We're just amazing. Yeah. Now, Steve, you are a percussionist. Yes, I am. Classic, classically trained percussionist. How do you adapt... How, how has that helped you? Do you adapt that into your films? Or how, and if you do, how do you do it? Without a doubt. My percussion is sort of what I focus the movies around. And I mean that saying a musical sensibility and a rhythm and a lyricism with my language. Okay. And in a concrete way, I play the drums in all of my movies. But my training as a percussionist gives me a sensibility to lyricism and music and rhythm. And I can't really dissect it more than that. I I know that when I make the movies, that comes through me, but it's invisible. It just affects what I put on the screen. I think it affects the monologues. Um, It affects the way the dialogue goes back and forth between people. I write very intuitively. I write and I listen back to what I write, the way I hear music, the way I, the way I play the drum set. It's, you know, sometimes the line's just too long. You know, like let's say the bar's four, four time and you got a break for two bars. So you got eight counts to play a solo. Well, if you play 10 counts, you've played too much. And I, I will hear lines I write like that. Like, well, that line is too long. And even it goes into editing. I'll trim a line down because as if there's a, 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 it doesn't a, thematically a piece of fit. music. Yeah. Right. As if there's a piece of music, that measure's too long. That, that shouldn't be there. Like My reason for editing comes from musical structure. And my first question, the first thing that I thought of when I heard that you were a percussionist is, 
in your mind, are you a percussionist who makes films or are you a filmmaker who happens to be a percussionist? Percussionist who makes films. Gotcha. Mm. So, Steve, you're working on a new film right now that, as I understand, is going to be premiered at the Neon. Can you tell us, without any spoilers here, tell, <laughs> tell us about your film, about the production, how you got it into the Neon, whatever you want to do, about, tell us about your film. I'm very happy to, Steve. This film is my first feature length, and it is a narrative, but I preface that with schematic narrative, and it has to do with reimagining present-day society. What I, mean, what I mean by schematic is rather than focusing on character and story, the character and story sort of take the back seat to the overall picture of the society and how the society operates, its value systems, um, I guess to a certain degree its morals, but I don't think that is really the, on, the, on the picture that much. It, which is interesting because it, it takes place in a prison. That's correct. It, one of the reimaginings is an idea called prison duty. So it, it should call to mind jury duty. It's the same idea. In the reimagined culture, people, it was put on a ballot, people voted on it, and so civilians have to spend time amongst criminals. And this movie looks at three civilian experiences. And like I said earlier, rather than focus wholly on the characters and the story, questions that exist in the culture are sort of asked with more importance than the characters and the plot. I love that idea so much because we have had, Steve and I have had discussions um, about I am a big, uh, I think that socioeconomics play a huge role in, um, in crime and in, in opportunities. And uh, I, it's, do you examine that at all? Um, I guess maybe with the more are, the, are the, the criminals in prison are they truly criminals or are they what that society thinks of as criminals that maybe we wouldn't consider them criminals? That lack of information in the movie, I think, at least I hope, I intend, begs questions about the society. I don't make it abundantly clear 100% who the criminals are. Interesting. The civilians and the criminals, you know they're together. Some of the criminals are identified, but then some of them aren't. And so it looks at, I think, more detailed, more refined aspects of the culture than crimes and who should be there and who shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um I sort of jump into the deep end of the pool and there's just information that they would not find out about each other. The civilians and the criminals wouldn't find out about each other. Now you did some research as we talked to you. You went into a prison or a jail. Was it a prison or a jail? 
It was a prison. Okay. Are you comfortable saying which prison it was, or you just want to say a prison? I'm going to say a prison. Okay. I gave my word uh, to respect anonymity. Oh, yeah, That's absolutely. Fine. And what was, uh, did you get to speak with, with um, inmates who are incarcerated? Mm-hmm. And, and I was able to speak with them in the way I wanted to present in the film, meaning I didn't do interviews. I didn't talk to them one-on-one. I did not find out what they were in for. Right. I wasn't interested in that. Right. I was interested in seeing randomly in the middle of the day how inmates act and is it different than the way civilians act. And that is what I translated over into the movie. Were you surprised at all by any of your research or, or anything in making the, the film? I was pretty surprised at how intimidated I was because I sat, I was able to sit in some classrooms. And not all the classrooms were very different, the two that I sat in on. The, one the prison was, classrooms. Right. One was crowded and very ruckus, and the other one was sparse and very tranquil. What, do you think, why do you think that was? Was it um, the content? Was it the It was the reason, teacher? as far as I know, it was the reason the students were there. Okay. The tranquil, sparse one was your, your more expected classroom. They were working for their GED. Okay. So they were reading and writing. Gotcha. And the other one was for a horticultural class, hmm. which is seems to have the reputation of passing the time. At least mm-hmm. that was the vibe I got. But I was intimidated, and I attribute that maybe to um, giving more credit than credits deserved, that I... I respect what I don't know about their situation. Mm-hmm. And I sort of implied that something happened that was very painful for multiple people and them that resulted in them being here. Will your and fil- I think I attributed that to being intimidated. I might have played that up. But, there, I mean, it's, it's intimidating. There are a lot of tattoos on the face. And there's a lot of apathetic kind of attitude. So will your film address rehabilitation versus punishment? It sort of does because the the institution in the Reimagined Society is called Extra Credit. And it's a place where inmates go who have been on good behavior. Okay. So it does present an alternate way to spend your time or to do your time rather. And I think that's in the realm of rehabilitation. There are more relaxed rules. The vibe is different. It's described as a unit that is one step away from incarceration, but also one step away from civilian life or freedom. It's almost like a halfway house, sort of. I mean, is that accurate? I, I, I would say that's accurate. Okay. You said that it was intimidating for you. Did you... Did you have to wrestle with maybe some sociological norms? And was that something that you were conscious of throughout or something that you um, even felt like you needed to address for yourself? I didn't know what to expect when I went in. I really had no idea if I would even be able 
to see inmates. Mm. And I think I wanted to approach it just as a pedestrian meeting other people. Um, I think that the, the norms were brought to my attention when I was in the classroom, but I wasn't looking, I wasn't expecting them. I wasn't wrestling with them. I, I, I was just sort of hit with them. So were you left alone with the inmates or was there a correctional officer there with you at all times? I had an escort the whole okay. time. I was able to visit segregation. I was able to visit the chow hall. Um, that was one of the um, more intimidating moments, actually, because the the guy serving up the food, it, there, he 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 just did not care. <laughs> he did not care, and it it was it was just like a humbling respect, you know, I felt, but I was also intimidated because I felt like I was, I was in their house. I was on their field. I was, I was, um, annoying. I, I was that annoying sightseer. It's like, why are you, why are you here? Did and, that translate to the film? Might've. Oh, without a doubt. So, so, um, did you have, I'm curious if that would, make you reimagine your civilian characters then. Very true. I don't want to give, I don't want to give away. I don't want to give a lot away, but you're, you're asking very intelligent questions and I don't, I don't want to. uh, So um, in other words, if you want to know the answer, go see the movie. That's that's very true. Let's be, let's be very clear right here. Kim is asking the intelligent questions. (laughs) I am just tagging along like a little puppy. I by far married way above my class in the intelligence field. I'm just no, I'm just a nerd that asks nerdy things. <laughs> That's all it is. Um, oh gosh, this makes me want to see the movie so bad. Do uh, do you think that it will be a difficult movie? It is it. I guess does it follow in the same vein as your other films as an art film? And will it be accessible to the general public or do people need to know going in, it is an art film, you need to connect the dots on your own? Much more accessible. Okay. I've always wanted to challenge myself as a filmmaker. And where I challenge the audience, I also try to focus that challenge so that there aren't... I know for some people who might have seen my work, I'm, I am not speaking adequately about it, but I try not to throw a million things at people at once to try to handle. Mm-hmm. I try to focus it. And I say that comparatively. I mean, there's a lot that I strip down. There's a lot that I don't include. Um, and my work is, like I said earlier, an alternative to... Um, cinematic rules and language. Um, But in this one, challenging people is really what I'm asking, or excuse me, asking people to reflect is the way in which I'm challenging them. Mm, That can be really hard. And so that's accessible to everybody because everyone can reflect. Oh, sure. And that, that makes it accessible. I don't think... It is not, I will say in full disclosure, it is not a movie that people will not be able to quote-unquote follow. Do there you, are, there is just that the emphasis is on 
reflection and details and and um, obser- observing observation of a culture, details in a culture, and and um, reflecting on a culture. Were any of the probably not none of the the uh, scenes were shot at the prison or in the prison? No, not at all. They were shot in a barn. In a barn. Okay. The no whole spo- thing was shot in a barn. No spoiler alerts. The main portion of the film was shot in a barn. Interesting. Quite an undertaking. Uh, I knew, of course, that I had to build the set. And that's what I and uh, some wonderful, wonderful guys helped me with. Nick, Adam, and Steven, I, I want to acknowledge. They, they were there with me, and they were incredibly supportive and willing to do hard work with me. We had to lay tile on the floor, make a a false floor that also would hold up when people walked on it. Um, the the background had to be a certain way. Props were brought in. I spent a lot of time drawing and measuring and drawing diagrams of how far people could walk, where they couldn't go, um, where the camera would have to be. I went over to the barn um, handful of times to measure and double check my measurements and um, storyboards and diagrams were done. It was an undertaking. Bed frames, special bed frames were bought. Um, we, we hauled a whole lot of stuff. The U-Haul truck was packed. The lights were 70 pounds a case. There were like, we had 12 cases of lights. It had to go I in a single van. Where, where do you it find was, this equipment? Is there like a movie stuff. supply store someplace? Or little by little, I I accumulated all my own equipment, um, and the lights that I mentioned that were seventy pounds a case, I rented from Markey's. Okay. And I found out about Markey's because I was a catering and restaurant server at the Schuster Center for seven years, and Markey would do the top ten women of the year, and they would set up their TV monitors. And I would ask, I guess, quote unquote, nerdy questions to them, and, <laughs> and I kept their business cards. And then I, I reached out to them when I needed help lighting a very large area that I did not have the lights for. And so when I say I gained my own equipment, I have lights and I have cameras and I have mixers and I have microphones and I have C stands and gels and NDF and and uh, it's a steady cam stand and all this stuff. But I that doesn't mean I can light anything. And and this was a large area that, that had to be lit. When I think that this is a part of film that people don't generally think of, you know, you go to the movies, you go for escapism, you go to watch a final finished product, and you don't really think about how it got from um, the director or the screenwriter's brain to your eyeballs. And there's so much in the meantime, you got to think about costumes and, and everything. I think for a good filmmaker, everything is a considered choice. It's not like, Oh, I just went to the Goodwill and this was the cheapest thing. So that's what I bought. It is a carefully measured decision from, from, costumes to light design to you mentioned storyboarding um and how maybe did did you have to rearrange scenes once you started filming them did from concept to actual production 
were, did everything flow the way that you thought it would, or did you need to kind of restructure a little bit? The structure and the shooting schedule did not have to change at all. I was, I was incredibly fortunate. I wrestled with the fear that after I wrote it and after I shot it, I was going to realize that there was a gaping plot hole mm. and there isn't. Good. Um, the shooting of the scenes, needless to say, was out of order, but it was out of order to accommodate the schedules of the people. Mm. I had some people there who were extras and I did not want them to be hanging around a set for two days. They had given me my... They had given me their time on one day, and so what I did was I structured the shooting schedule so that all the scenes with extras would be shot in one day. And then everyone else who were principals or secondary actors or supporting, having just seen the Oscars, I should have just <laughs> rolled off the tongue with supporting instead of secondary <laughs> actors. They were there for both days, so they were contracted for a longer period of time. And... As a side note, I'd like to say that I'm very proud of the fact that I do value people's time and volunteers on a film project, in my opinion, uh, my amateur opinion, have priority with time. Mm -hmm. If you give your time and you are not getting paid, your time is more important than anyone getting paid. And I, oh, yeah. and I applied that. And it, it worked very well. The, the shooting schedule did go smoothly. We took a lunch break. Um, I, I unwound. I just walked around the uh, outside. It was in April. It was a wonderful <laughs> afternoon. I did not eat. I didn't drink coffee either. I just walked. I just walked down the dirt road and, and, and took some time. Well, you know, I was going to ask for a spot in your next film, but I just learned you don't pay. <laughs> so it's been nice. Oh, Did you miss that part where we're funding his next film? It's, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. So... Steve, we, we only have a few more minutes. Last thoughts about your film. Where will it be premiered? Give me a date, time, at the Neon. I know that. Two weeks from yesterday. Two weeks from yesterday. February 23rd, Neon Movies downtown, 5.30. Question and answer afterwards. First feature, 90 minutes. Tickets are on sale through Neon Movies. I'm very happy to say that this afternoon I checked, 86 seats have been sold. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Okay. So we have, we have 47 available, and tickets are $5. You can 45. Buy 45 can, available. Five. 45 available, can $5 we go on, a ticket. Can we go online and reserve? Yes. Okay. Neonmovies.com. Can we know what you got to do here in a I, That's why I say there's only 45 seats available. There's not 47. There's 45 because we just bought two. So. Oh, we did? Oh, good. <laughs> So we'll see you again there. Yeah, right. Wonderful. Okay. Wonderful. This has been wonderful. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I, I thank I'm, you. I love so talking much for... about my movies and and film and 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 art society. Period. But to be able to do it uh, in this format is is uh, is, is an opportunity I'm, I'm grateful for, for for. So thank you very much for allowing me to come on your show. We are so grateful to have you. We love I, having people come on the show. And, and I will not be able to go to a movie. I go to a movie, and I go <laughs> for the entertainment. Sure. Now, you may have ruined this for me, because if I go to Welcome a movie, to my life. I'm going to be thinking about how do they set the camera? How do they do the lights? 
how do they set the stage? And you're talking about just measurements to put the actors and to do what you got to do. So thank you for ruining movies for the rest of my <laughs> life, Steve. You'll right. thank me later. It's You'll okay. thank me later. <laughs> it's all good. All right. So um, what else do we have? Uh, fine, uh, best of Dayton closed down. Announce, or results have not yet been announced. Maybe by the time this airs, it will have been. I don't know, but we'll see. Um, you can find us on Twitter. Please follow us on Twitter. I keep begging for Twitter followers because we have like three still, maybe four. At A Lost Hour on Twitter. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, An Hour of Your Life. You can email us at um, alosthour at gmail.com. If you would like to get in touch with Steve, um, let us know and we'd be happy to forward your information. Steve, to do, him. You have a, do you have a contact? What, we're going to do a couple, one last call to action here for you with the movie, the location, and if someone wanted to contact you, how can they do that? Two great ways, email and Facebook. Okay. Facebook.com forward slash row method. That's R-O-W-M-E-T-H-O-D. Or row method, R-O-W-M-E-T-H-O-D at gmail.com. And my name is Steve Heeman. And that is a direct contact for me. Okay. Fantastic. And, and if you haven't seen Steve's movies, go on Vimeo and check them out. You can just uh, search Steve Heeman, um, click on people, and five of his films will show up. And one last time, where will the movie be? What date <laughs> and what time? Neon Movies, downtown, February 23rd, Sunday, 530. All right. We'll see you all there. We'll see you there. Absolutely. Kim, go ahead. Get us out of here tonight. Uh, you're supposed to say from the beautiful 13th Hour Studios. Oh, well, the sign fell down. I so, don't want to talk about the sign. From the beautiful 13th <sighs> Hour Studios in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us.